0: Good morning, good day, or good evening, whenever and wherever you are listening. My name is Kevin Fukunaga, and you've just joined the Scripts and Scribe social. Thank you for joining us today. Many of us are socially distancing ourselves, so this is our opportunity to hear from other writers who are going through a similar experience. Today we're joined by a screenwriter and filmmaker whose credits include BHS 2 and Nickelodeon's Santa Hunters and Tiny Christmas, and the detourist for Amazon Studios. He's also the author of the sci-fi thriller novel, Nomad. He is Jamie Nash. Thanks for coming on today, Jamie.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. It gets me out of the house virtually.
0: <laughs> virtually, right, exactly.
1: Virtually. virtually. This, uh, is, this is as far as we get. Right. Phone call.
0: Now, speaking of virtually, I know that in addition to being a screenwriter, you also teach uh, screenwriting at your uh, local college or university um mm-hmm. so maybe you can tell us a little bit about how both your screenwriting and your teaching is going during the time of uh <laughs> coronavirus
2: yeah
1: yeah yeah so it's very interesting i just finished um trying to record a lecture uh right before this phone call so my Screenwriting is going much better than my teaching. I will say <laughs> that. Like I, uh, the I, I spent, I think I spent 30 minutes putting down a short lecture and then I tested it and my PowerPoint was not on the image. <laughs> so <laughs> I got to redo it after this call. So it's it's not going well. Um, by the way, I, I teach at um, the Maryland Institute College of the Arts in Maryland. Okay. Uh, that's one of the weird things about me. I live in Maryland and I teach at um, Towson University. And so they're the two schools, uh, that I teach at here. Uh, screenwriting wise, I'd say things haven't changed that much. I've, I've been very productive. I've been, um, I've, you know, I've been doing my thing. I've been, uh, I've, I've, uh, I did a pitch yesterday. I wrote up, sent it off to my manager. You know, I got some feedback. I wrote a bunch of log lines for some pitches that I might have coming up. I, uh, I wrote five pages (laughs) last week, uh, probably with a co-writer that I was working with. Um, Things are going well as far as writing. I I would even say I'm probably a little more focused than usual, maybe just because it takes away from all the anxiety and stress.
0: Now, I know for a lot of writers, there's extra time to write because you don't have commutes and you don't have other distractions and commitments like family or friends and all these types of things. But at the same time, at least for the past week or so, show business, Hollywood, the industry has been sort of, I don't want to say shut down, but sort of definitely in a holding pattern, a pause where a lot of shows have been uh, shut down. Some are working in virtual writers rooms, but a lot of film production has been shut down studios and and networks and agencies. Many of them are, you know, working from home or uh, temporarily not working, things of that nature, or at least not focused on development, which is where a lot of screenwriters obviously uh, spend a lot of their time doing. Half your job is Mm -hmm. writing, the other half is finding your next job kind of thing. Um, Sure, sure. For you, what has the situation been like, not just in terms of your own writing, but in terms of other projects you may have been going out with, or you've gone, uh, you know, meeting with other executives and producers and things like that. And, you know, some people have taken meetings via zoom or Skype or whatever. Uh, but I think has that affected you? I mean, has it slowed down substantially because I don't know coming from New- uh, Maryland, do you come out to LA a lot or do you do a lot of meetings, yeah. uh, via Skype and things like that?
1: It's a really funny, uh, funny that you should ask. So, in some weird way, I feel like I'm on a living, level playing field for <laughs> once geographically challenged. Yeah. Um, I, so in the last two weeks, so really since this thing's been going on heavy, I've had, I've had two, um, WebEx meetings. Oh, I've okay. had Two of them. Uh, so, uh, with, and, and both of those were, were generals, essentially. They were, um, meeting some new development execs I haven't met before. Um, uh, you know, doing some really high level kind of pitching, but the kind of pitching to figure out what the pitch should be. Um, so, you know, I did those in the last two weeks. So people are definitely open for business. They're just open on WebEx as opposed to flying into L.A. Mm-hmm. I, I do get to L.A. occasionally. It's not, I, do, I don't go like, like I have some friends that do this remotely that might go maybe once once a month or something like that. I'm, at best, I'm probably a couple times a year unless something really pulls me out there. Um, so, yeah, I, I've done two WebEx this week. Um, I did have two projects that have been kind of out there on spec. They've been out there for a little while, though. They're kind of being slow-played around. And I, I would say those have hit the pause button for now. You know, mm-hmm. I, I haven't heard much much about that kind of stuff. Um, but it's a good time for, like, my manager to catch up and some things she hasn't read in a while. Or I, sent my, I think I sent my agent two, two scripts because he was not my agent because of the WGA and all that stuff that right. went on um, up until about, I'm trying to remember, he's APA. So it's January, I think, late January. So he's kind of catching up on some of the stuff I wrote last year. Um, so it's a good time for that.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: We have some reading time. And for
0: newer writers out there who may have never had a general meeting, uh, Mm -hmm. maybe you could tell explain to them what you mean by general meeting as opposed to like a pitch meeting or, you know, and advice for like, what are some of your tips for going into your first general meetings? Take the bottle yeah, of water, yeah. by the way. Take the bottle of water if they offer to you, take even if the bottle you don't think.
1: So, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's the test. You always take the bottle of water, and I, I always do. It gives me something to do with my nervous hands, or you know, whatever. It gives me a prop. Right. Um. So I always it, They they often call them uh, water bottle tours. Like mm. that. That was always the term. Right. When I was coming up, because you just collect the water bottles. Um. So generally, uh, how they work is after you get the agent, after you get the manager, um, something happens. For me, I'll I'll just talk in my experience, because there are different ways you can get them. But in my experience, I'd send out a spec script. The spec script would have some fans, usually fans that didn't want to buy it. (laughs) Usually people that said, we love the writing, but we can't make this because X, Y, Z. And uh, your manager or agent, in my case, it's almost always the manager that sets those up. Uh, If you have one, Uh, they, they send you on a tour of all the places that read your script that turned it down or or almost, or tried to sell it, but couldn't quite sell it. And uh, you go to those meetings and you meet those people face to face. Um, And in those meetings, they are really what they sound like. They're general meetings. They're just get to know you meetings. They're hi, How are you doing? Um, What are you working on? And I'll, you know, I'll, I'll ask them what they're working on. they'll ask me what I'm working on, and uh then you'll hopefully you'll make some kind of love connection so you can email them or talk to them in the future about something. Um, the home run is kind of that you'll get out of those is being offered to pitch on something in the future, so you know those aren't pitch meetings, but sometimes they can lead the pitch meetings um, That's usually kind of the best case scenario that you'll walk out with. Um, you'll, you'll just, you know, you'll make some kind of connection and they will put you on their radar so that you're somebody they'll go to in the future, or you can go to them when you have something close. So that's that's in a nutshell, that's what they are. Right. And I would
0: add when, in addition to taking the bottle of water, which they'll offer you uh, when you first come in, generally speaking, always mm-hmm. know what it is you want to write because invariably mm-hmm. they're going to ask you, so what do you like to, do? especially if you have a script that is a tweener, like maybe you have, yeah. you know, a script that's a dark comedy or something like that. If you have a straight up, you know, horror film or action film, you probably may not get asked that as much. But if you have mm-hmm. something that's that's an indie film uh, or something that's definitely a different sort of a blend of genres, they may ask you, mm-hmm. what is it you like to write? And they're basically not just starting a conversation. They want to know how to classify you as a writer because when those executives are looking for a, a, a young, i.e. cheap comedy writer or romantic melodrama writer or whatever – they're going to go to their list, and based on what you tell them, that's what list you're probably going to go on. And if you don't know, then they don't know what list to put you on, so you won't go on one.
1: Right, right. And I, I would add that, you know, in in my case, if they had read that spec script, sometimes mm-hmm. that would be the list I'm in. You know, Sure, whatever absolutely. That spec script was. absolutely. Um, I, I usually go in – I tell you, when I go to L.A. and I go on those generals, and it's usually a thing where I'll, I'll meet with, let's say, four four different companies a day, which is about – all you can do with driving around LA and and all the traffic and stuff, maybe you could fit in a fifth and in a crazy day you'd fit in a sixth and one would have to cancel. Um, but usually I meet about four, I'd say. And, uh, I usually go in with a bunch, but first of all, I research, I, I know every single person I'm meeting. I know where they worked before. I know what they produce. I know all those things. I go in there with that and I usually have Sort of a library of things I either have worked on, want to work on, you know. So I can I can kind of adjust based on the meeting. I mean, it is best to be 100% truthful. So don't just go in there and say, oh, I love comedy when you hate writing comedy or you just can't do it. But you know, I, I I personally have, you know, I have a spectrum of things I write on. Like like you said, I have tweeners, and then mm-hmm. I have maybe things that are more strict in one category or another at least I'm ready to kind of zig and zag based on the conversation. Um, it, you know, because really they are just free flowing kind of speed date sort of conversations. And the more you sort of have in your arsenal so that you're open to a lot of different things. Uh, I think the better off you tend to survive those meetings.
0: Right. Right. and And to your point, I think, like you said, have things in your arsenal that you are either working on or interested in working on because that's another thing that I found is very frequent when they ask you, so what else are you working on or what what do you want to be working on or or what other ideas do you have? I mean, if you can have a fully-fledged fully, fr- fully fledged pitch, you can oftentimes pitch in that room if you have something. You uh, can. I, cool. I, I wouldn't yeah. just say, oh, I've been thinking about doing something with you know, dinosaurs and I don't know, don't just like throw out right. loose ideas, but if you have a prepared yeah. pitch or if you have another spec that you wrote that you are really passionate about, you can be ready. Cause they will say, if you have, you know, say, I, I have a great script about, you know, dinosaurs that, you know, I've, I've been working on a rewrite on that. And they'll, oftentimes they'll say, well, when you're done with that or when you're ready, you know, have your rep send it to me or, you know, yeah,
1: I'd love to read uh, it. Absolutely. I, I usually go in there armed with, you know, log lines, there's usually things I'm either working on, I have to the, at least the outline phase, usually. It's not just some kind of random thing I'm, I'm shooting from the hip. It's, it's pretty much a good elevator pitch. I usually right. have a handful of the elevator pitches. Um, and usually what I come out from with those meetings is, you know, I always ask them, you know, what would you like to see from me? Hmm. I, that's the question I always ask them when I right. leave. Uh, and, and usually, they'll tell me, they'll say something very specific, like, I'd love a slasher movie or, or something, or I'd love a movie like, uh, I, I know for, sometimes they all say the same thing, like, we're looking for Taken or something, or right. uh, Don't Breathe or whatever thing, The Quiet Place, um, you know, whatever thing they they say. Um, but a lot of times, they'll kind of give you some almost marching orders that if you do have any bandwidth um, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll let you send log lines and things like that after the fact. Like that's oh yeah. They usually give you their business card. They're usually open to saying, "Hey, test. Feel free to use me to test the waters if you want to write something." And that's that's a way a guy like me who lives on the East Coast can make relationships. Yeah. So that's kind of the start of it.
0: And really, that's what the general is about. It's exchanging ideas, like if you have something else to pitch, but also, like you would said, developing relationships. Because we can go on and on and on about how important that is in this business, but it really is about relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's just them opening the door to, hey, I like your writing. Let's keep in touch. I just wanted to, to meet you and talk to you just for a few minutes or whatever, just to kind of say, hey, my door is open if you have something.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. And to
0: and yeah. to ensure you're not crazy and awful to be around. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. And, and relationships are really key. I mean, it's it's no no lie. Like I've probably had about eight to ten things produced on certain levels at this point, and I'd say eighty percent of them are with the same two people. There's like two groups of people that I've produced most. Of, there's some tree or branch that I've sort of come from that most of my stuff has had. Somebody you know involved in one of those two you know projects of those two branches so and and most of the paid work I've gotten has kind of come from those branches as well, so right. um relationships are serious like once you get that person that likes the way you work, that wants to work with you um, that that person can pay off for a long time uh and vice versa, you'll pay off for them for a long time
0: right i mean that's that's sort of the dream for both parties, for writers to find an executive or a producer or again even agents and finding people who want to work with them on a consistent basis and for the the other side for the producer, executive or whoever to find a writer that has their sensibility, that's easy to work with, that's somebody that they like, that they can continually Mm -hmm. offer work to because nobody loves those meetings. Nobody wants to take more meetings to find somebody that that can do the work, uh, so they're they're more than happy to to build those relationships, and they want that. I mean, both sides do, I think. So, um, yeah, yeah,
1: most definitely, most definitely. So now, that's anyway. That's the general meeting. That, yeah. And I, I, again, and you can take them via WebEx now. So uh,
0: score. Yeah, and it might be more and more common now that everyone's being forced to do that. So it might be actually
1: sure.
0: more and more common
1: now. Yeah, I, Oh, go ahead. That's a, that's a thing I've noticed. I mean, I I often am very upfront about that uh, for certain reasons. But uh, I, I've been able to take a lot of meetings by phone and WebEx over the last couple years, especially, mm-hmm. where it used to almost be a never thing. Uh, I, I've even done a couple pitches uh, via phone before. It's not the ideal way to pitch. It's really hard because you can't read the room. It's just like dead silence and you're imagining the worst. <laughs> Uh, it's probably the worst way to pitch, but, um, I I've actually had people, uh, totally okay with it. Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: I just know that I've, I've heard a lot of writers in LA who are now doing mm-hmm. what you're doing in terms of, of generals and things like that via, uh, WebEx and Skype and, and, and zoom right. and these types of things. And they're saying that they, they they hope and they think that this could be the new norm for generals, not driving around town all over. Now, for pitching, obviously, like you said, it's it's a little bit different, but for a lot, a lot yeah. of generals, even like working riders in LA are like, I want this to be permanent. I do not want to do generals via driving around town, spending three quarters of the time in your car on the freeway and an hour in the meeting while you spent again a 90 minutes round trip on, on yeah. for that you know what i mean
1: yeah 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 yeah
0: um now you're in maryland and so mm-hmm. i wanted to cuz we get asked a lot about do i have to move to los angeles to be a writer and our answer generally is for television you kind of do because most mm-hmm. of the writers rooms are here and there's tons and tons of meetings and it's really about uh, uh, it's it's about writing but it's more about whether how you fit into their writers' rooms, and it's harder to do that over That's right. Skype and That's things, right. and you have to be here anyway to work in the writers' room. But mm-hmm. for screenwriting, it can be a little bit different. For screenwriting, uh, you have to come once in a while at least, but you mm-hmm. know, you can do a lot more of that via again uh, other services like Skype and things like that. So, I wanted to get your background. How did you get started in screenwriting? not being in Los Mm -hmm. Angeles and how do you, well, you've already talked a little little bit about how you make it work, but how did you get your start? And um, how are we, how did you basically plant your, your flag in in Maryland and still be a a working screenwriter?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's, uh, it started a long time ago. I was, I was actually a computer science major. So Mm. I was a computer consultant. I, I loved film. I was actually a double major, uh, a film major, but I never graduated with all the credits. Uh, I think I took all the film courses. So I basically was a film major just so I could add access to the equipment, right. make films, get all the classes, but I never actually graduated. So I loved film, and I loved writing as well. I took a lot of creative writing classes. So even while I was a computer programmer and did that for many years, I was always writing, and uh the you know i I came up in the like late nineties, so it was the internet that really enabled me to be able to join the game because before that i uh, you know I wouldn't have final draft or know any of that stuff, or you know there was no shared access or anything like that, so in the late nineties when the internet really took off, i was being a computer guy, I had a ton of access and things like that, so i was I was writing and really enjoying myself. Um, I sold, I, my, my first script was a, well, I should say I, I started to write movies I could make myself. Um, I, you know, again, I was a film major, I had shot things. And I, I was kind of trying to follow in that Robert Rodriguez, mm. Kevin Smith, you know, that right. kind of model. Where I was going to just make something myself. Um, so my first few screenplays were those kind of screenplays. And I think I wrote a horror screenplay because I was a big Evil Dead fan.
2: Oh yeah.
1: And um yeah, I was I was a huge Sam Raimi fan. And uh, the script was called Probed, and it was a reverse alien abduction film. It was it was basically about rednecks abducting an alien as opposed to vice <laughs> versa. And it was a horror comedy mm-hmm. and uh I saw a ad in Inktip, the infamous Ink Tip, mm-hmm. uh you know, they send that newsletter, and this this goes way back to like 2003, so that's how long Ink has been around, and it was for the director of the Blair Witch Project, was looking for material, and I sent him the logline. Um, and then I sent the script, and then I remember on Halloween, uh, I actually met him for the first time, and it turned out he lived about 30, well, not even that much, 30 minutes, 40 minutes away from me. He had just moved back to Maryland from Orlando, where the Blair Witch guys kind of got their start.
2: Right. Um,
1: and uh, he didn't know I lived here. I didn't know. I, I sent my script to L.A., and then we met and we became collaborators for his next several movies. Um, and that, was, that, that script became a movie called Altered, which Universal bought back in like 2005, 2006 that he, he directed, which was the first movie he made after the Blair Witch Project. So that was kind of my first time, you know, I got good money for it. Not enough to quit my day job, but still pretty good money. And then I made like three or four uh, like movies with him after that. I collaborated, but also at that point, I started to get an agent, get a manager I started to pitch stuff, you know, all that, all those things started to happen then. So I was able to kind of turn it into a career maybe four or five years later, um, probably around 2008, 2009.
0: Now, did your agent and manager have any hesitation about you living and working out of Maryland? Like, did they encourage you to move to LA or were they just say, hey, what's, whatever's working, we'll just go
1: with that? Yeah, it, you know, it's really interesting. And the the infamous question, how do you get a manager or an agent? Sure. Um, I, I think my first manager, I got through another script sale. Um, but, uh, and, and, and she didn't have any hesitation. She was just like, she liked the material. She thought she could sell the material. Um, and, and that was it. She really never, I don't even think it ever came up. Um, but what happened after that, and this is the how do you get an agent or a manager, I, my next manager and my next agent, I got the same way. I was I was collaborating with Eduardo, Eduardo Sanchez, who directed Blair Witch.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, we had so many projects going and so many pitches and so many meetings. And his agent was repping those. And then he even had a manager that was repping those. And it got to a point where they sent out like six or seven of my scripts. And I just like looked at them and I'm like, aren't you really my agent? And they just signed me at that point. You know, it was like, yeah, you know, I'm your agent. So why don't we just make it official? So in both of those cases, they slowly just got to know me by sending out scripts, having success, making some money off of me until it wasn't as many as six or seven, but it was probably two or three, two two or three different projects. Um, So they they already knew me. So there really wasn't a hesitation. You know, like they were already doing business with me and realizing that business could be made. So I, I never really ran into that. I just, I, I will tell you though, that after my, I, I went a few years without having a manager. And uh, this year when the WGA thing happened, where we were supposed to fire all our agents and mm-hmm. they signed, you know, the, the conduct agreement, I decided I needed some rep. Cause I'm here in Maryland. I just needed somebody out there in LA to right. sell my material so i went on a manager hunt and i i had basically the way i hunted a manager was i went to producers that were good friends of mine that really liked my work and worked with me in the past and i said can you recommend some people to me and they would send my stuff to people without telling them i was here and some of those people i had very enthusiastic calls like they were like i remember one call in particular they were like we love this I can get you staffed on a television show tomorrow with this, you know, all this. And then I, and then I had to say, wait, I live in Maryland. I can't be staffed on a television show. And those, those managers just couldn't work with me. Cause they were more TV oriented. Right. Um, I did eventually sign with, with the manager. Um, one of the first three. And uh, you know, I, I told her right away and she was, she was just fine. She was fine with it. Um, I'm sure it represents, a challenge in some ways, but, uh, she didn't, she didn't mind the challenge and, uh, she still thought she could get me work and, uh, sell, you know, the stuff I was producing.
0: Right. And you're best, you're best known for your work in a couple of, of genres in terms of like thriller horror stuff and, mm-hmm. uh, yep. uh, kids, you know, family, and holiday stuff, how did you end up sort of working in two diverse, it's hard enough to make it sort of in one path, you know, being known for something and everyone's like, oh, but I can write 20 million things, but it's it's hard to get work doing more than one thing, generally speaking, your reps will tell you generally, focus on one thing and let's get you going in that. So it's, but how how were you able to basically create two different, very divergent paths of of screenwriting and, and, you know, working in the industry in both areas.
2: Yeah,
1: that it's, um, it's a bit of a mystery to me too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I, so I can tell you why I do it. Uh, first off is one, I, you know, I grew up loving all kinds of movies. Like I love evil dead, but I love E.T. and I love Jaws, but I love, um, I don't know, Schindler's List or something. to to two, uh, Steven Spielberg movies. Uh, but so I, I think, um, I, I just love movies. I I love the whole gamut of movies. I started in horror mostly because I wanted to make things on my own. And I just realized that that's the genre you had to work in if you wanted to make things on your own. Um, my, my first few scripts were comedies. Uh, they were just straight out, like Farley brothers, (laughs) you know, Mm. early 2000 comedies. Like that's what I, that's what I thought I was going to be. I thought I was going to be a comedy writer. Um, and out of the gate, I had some success. And when I say success, like contest, you know, success and things like that. And, and people interested in, in my comedy work. So I, I was like, Oh, this is going to be the thing. Um, then I turned to horror and that that turned out my first horror script was the first one that made me money. Um, uh, and then after that, I wrote a Western and that made me money. It didn't never got made. Um, so I, it's just this weird progression of just writing the things I wanted to write and loved. Um, so that, that's, that's kind of what happened. I, I think where the family thing came into play was later on, I started to mix my comedy back into some of the scripts. Like, horror comedy is a really tough sell. Like, I, I tried to do horror comedy so many times. And it's just, it's, it's not an easy sell for studios, but where I found I could kind of do horror comedy was in in the family genre. I mean, if you look at those films, they usually have some fantasy or adventure or supernatural component, but then they also have a heavy dose of comedy to mix with it. So they're never too dark or scary or anything like that. So a lot of family films are like that. So they, they're, they're genre benders and, um, My favorite movies growing up were genre benders. They were kind of like, you know, Back to the Future would be the perfect example. It's funny, it's time travel, it's romantic in a weird sort of way. Um, I guess in a a really weird sort of way. Um, But they're they're genre benders. And uh, I think kids' movies are often a place where it's safe to experiment in those genre benders. And um, anyway, that's, that's sort of how I fell into it. It was just writing something I liked or, or something that was, um, fit my tone very naturally. Uh, it, I think the family side, uh, fits my, my voice, uh, the, what I, you know, it's, it's just a very easy slot to fit into. And I gave it a run and, uh, my managers and, and reps really responded to those in the early days and were very encouraging. And in fact, some of those general meetings I got in my early days, they were more for those movies. Than they were for um, for the horror. Even the horror, the horror did business and they sold and they got produced. But those um, those comedy, those those kind of genre genre mingling specs that I started to write, which were some of them were four quads. I would say that's what they were. So they they really were for everybody, kind of like the Jumanji's of today. Right. You know, right. there were there were those kind of stories, and they weren't making a lot of those when I started trying to sell them. Like. 2010, something like that, that those, those movies had kind of fallen out of the, like the Tim Allen movies and stuff had kind of died down. I think Kevin James was left, you know, Eddie Murphy was kind of gone. Uh, So those four quad movies were kind of dying down, but they still did get me a lot of meetings. They just never got made. And then those four quad movies eventually were what led to, I think the, the more kids and the, and the family movies that I made with Nickelodeon.
0: Right. And for, we always try to bring it back a little bit in terms of terminology. Uh, maybe you could explain mm-hmm. the, you know, the different quadrants, the four quads.
2: Sure, sure.
1: Uh, so the four quadrants are, and I, I don't remember the age number, like if it's over 30 or over 25, I can't remember what it is, but they're divided by age and uh, gender. So the quadrants are male, female, over and under of uh, that age. So those are the four quads. So, If you make a four-quad movie, in theory, it appeals to everybody. Right. That's all it's saying. Right.
0: Yep. Uh, Like you said, a Jumanji or something like that.
1: Jumanji is the perfect example. Like, the the recent Jumanji movie is the perfect example. There there used to be a ton of them. Uh, They just don't make them as much anymore. Uh, But I think they're making a comeback with streaming and and, uh, stuff like that. Yeah. The stuff – the movies Disney's making, um, some of the stuff Apple's putting on and Amazon, uh, they're definitely – the four quads are making a comeback uh, right now. I think superhero movies are sort of four quad. Everybody goes kids, Sam adults, Sam, you know, everybody. Right.
0: Right. That's pretty, that's pretty close to being what we have now, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah.
1: now I mean, go to, ahead. An to an extent Pixar and stuff too, but I guess oh, they yeah. make you a little bit more kid, you yeah. know?
0: Now, a lot of writers that we talk to are very passionate about horror or family, which I, you know, which you are both uh, very well acquainted with. If there's a writer out there and they've just they have uh, a horror script that they are feel passionate about, or multiple horror scripts they feel passionate about, what is your advice? What should their next step be? Or I guess a family film as well. They have a a great Jumanji four quad script in their hand uh, because they're very. Now, Jumanji, the the four quad stuff is very broad, so that's obviously a little bit different. Right. But let's say, um, yep. let's bring it back and maybe maybe pull it to like a family, a holiday film, because again, that's a very mm-hmm. specific niche within that the family genre. But it's also very popular right. and it's it's timeless. Like every year, everyone watches okay. a Christmas story or even uh, Jingle All the Way, whatever. Uh, right. right,
2: they're
0: they're mm-hmm. timeless films. Uh, so they ha- they definitely have a specific niche market. They're very profitable, and they tend to be on the lower end of the budgets, but they're super profitable, and they're always they have like legs for days kind of thing. Um, so, what's your advice for the person with a, a a specific niche film like that, a genre film like that?
1: Yeah, but you know, both are very different. Mm-hmm. Um, the horror thing, uh, if you're the type of person that loves horror. I think you're you're in a bit of luck because I think you're open to more buyers. I think there's a lot of buyers out there that like horror. You know, lots of different studios. The big thing that is in your favor is budget. Um, if you you know the Blumhouse model, uh, you know that under five million dollar horror film, and usually under five million means uh, you could you could probably make it yourself. <laughs> for a hundred thousand dollars with your friends, but it's probably going to be a little better and you can get a star for the under $5 million version. Um, and you can pay everybody. It's not just paid in pizza. Um, so if you, ha- if you have that kind of $5 million under movie, those those kind of cheap, uh, horror movies. There are a lot of people interested in not just the players that you need agents and stuff to get to they're, they're management companies that, Maybe you're looking to make horror. They're independent producers. And honestly, I survived independently up until, you know, probably for 10 years, I survived just selling independently. So for those people, you don't really have to have an agent or a manager. The downside is you don't get paid as much and you have to do twice as much work to get half as much money. Um, So anyway, that's a good thing. Uh, And you can always make them yourself. Um, i have seen, uh, there was a whole swing in the last couple of years that um, you, you may have seen a whole bunch of short films, short horror films were selling, you know, it's kind of the lights out model. Um, and uh, people were making horror shorts that were almost like little prototypes. they were almost like teaser scenes mm-hmm. from what their horror movie would be. I think Amblin bought one. Um, I think James Wan's company might've bought one. I think, um, Sam Raimi's company might have bought one, and they buy the rights to the short to turn into a feature. Um, so that was the whole thing that happened in the last couple of years. I don't, I don't know if that trend is still going. These things, you know, like matics and stuff like that as sales tools, will right. kind of go through trends. But the last couple of years, that horror short thing has been a big deal. Um, so I think if you if you have a horror, you you have a certain advantage because of the budget and and that just means more buyers. On the other hand, the family stuff is a little trickier. Um, there on one hand, there are a lot of television companies that, that produce, you know, cheap Christmas movies. Like if you were in the Hallmark market, for example, like uh, there, there are, they, they just make so many of those. And there, if you come up with one, um, You know, there are buyers out there, there are producers and stuff that are trying to get something to Hallmark or or a similar channel that if you make a, if you write a low budget, sweet Christmas kind of thing, they'll pay attention to you and you might not even need an agent or a manager to get to those, those kinds of producers, those producers at the sort of cheapest low budget levels that are trying to pull off movies for 500,000 or less or something like that. Um, but however, if you get to the broad family um, kind of thing, uh, my experience is there, you probably are going to need that rep to get you in the door. Like they're they're the harder ones, the Jumanji's of the world for sure. Anything that might be a feature or sell to maybe a slightly bigger network. Even you know, I, I've done a lot of stuff with Nickelodeon. I, I think it would be hard to get into a Nickelodeon or an Apple or a Netflix or an Amazon without having some rep, you know, representation. Right. Um, I think they would be harder to get into.
0: Right. And talking, going back to horror really quickly, we had a question from uh, a listener who would ask you your opinion on found footage horrors, I guess, like Blair Witch or like uh, as above so below and the viability Mm -hmm in today's film market of those types
1: of films. Like, is
0: there a is there a, a market for that?
1: Yeah, so I you know I'm a big fan of sound footage. Um I've made a couple of those. Um I So VHS 2 of course was that was sound footage. A movie I had a movie called Exists, which is a big foot sound footage movie. Um a movie we made Lovely Molly was mixed. It had some sound footage and some you know standard. Even Santa hunters, my pitch was kind of Blair Witch with Santa Claus. It was it was originally a found, yeah, it was originally a found footage movie, but um, they kind of for the Nickelodeon audience, they backed off on some of the you know they 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 mixed it, they mixed it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a big fan of found footage, but I will say, as somebody who has probably a pile of found footage scripts that haven't gotten made in my uh, on my hard drive it's not a very popular thing. It's almost a non-starter. It's like, it's kind of like saying zombies in a room or something or vampires or one of those things that people are instantly shut down. Um, However, I do believe that the cycle, you know, all these things are cyclical and we've been, we've been away from found footage for a few years now. I, I think the cycle has been like two or three years since it's been gone. So it's very possible that if you just came up with the next cool thing in found footage, it could reinvigorate it because the cycle has been off for long enough. I think, I think it'll make a comeback. It's just whether the comeback will be five years from now or next year. I'm not, I can't really say, uh, but I can tell you, uh, I tend to stay away from the found footage right now. Uh, probably about two or three years ago, it just, the market was saturated, and it's because you can make them for cheap, and so many people did, and there were just so many of them, that I think it just started to become a bit of a turnoff.
0: Right. Let's talk about uh, a little bit further into that. Uh, yesterday, I spoke with uh, Mark Blutman, who is a TV uh, writer-producer, and he brought on a friend of his who's also a pre, he's a pre WGA screenwriter, but he's also uh, an ESPN NFL insider, John Kime. And we went over the best sports films uh, ever. So we went down the whole list and, and talked about a lot of sports films. Now with you, I'd love to talk about the best horror films. What are your, like your Mount Rushmore of horror films or thrillers that you would put up there? Like four or five of that you would, you know, go to bat for that you think are the best or your favorites. at yeah. least
1: I guess. Yeah. That's, this is always the killer question. Right? It, right? I, I should have, I should have an answer for this because I am somebody that's fascinated by doing these lists, but every time I do them, I change. So this will be different than the list I'll make next week. That's <laughs> Uh I, cause I could tell you the ones that terrified me as a kid. And I was somebody that watched so many of them at a very young age that I, nothing scares me anymore, you know? So, uh, I almost have to admire them more for their craft now than the true emotions they bring to them. Uh, they just don't, they don't scare me anymore. And I I was also a kid that grew up on horror books. So by the time I was like in sixth or seventh grade, I had read it, the stand pet cemetery, every book by Dean R. the books of blood by Clive Barker, hellraiser, you know, all that stuff. I was a huge hellraiser fan. Um, so I, you know, I loved horror books. I just and, this, and then I used to make my own horror uh, haunted houses in my backyard. And I was this weird kid that would hide behind a tree and wait for my friends to come and just jump out and go, boo. You know, I, I was right. that weird kid. So I, I loved horror as a kid. Um, so anyway, the first one, the scariest thing I ever saw as a kid was the trailer to the movie Magic. <laughs> Did you ever see this?
2: No. Did you ever see
1: this movie or hear this movie?
2: No. Okay,
1: well, you know, put it in your Google box. Uh, you know, give it a try. But it's it's basically a ventriloquist dummy. Anthony Hopkins was in the movie. And they accidentally, when I was like, I don't know if I was like three years old or, or even younger, they they for some reason they aired this trailer in prime time. And it's just, you know, ventriloquist dummies are really creepy. So <laughs> right. the number one yeah, the number one scariest thing I, I ever saw was that. Uh, that So I'll start with that. Um, and then a lot of the movies I saw when I was a kid on uh, on television, Halloween jumps out at me as the first one. Uh, I saw that at a very young age. I found it terrifying, but I still revisit it and think it's kind of a masterpiece of horror. Um, the Exorcist is mm-hmm. is another movie. I grew up Catholic. Um I read the book. I lived not too far from d c um It was a terrifying movie. I believed every bit of it um so it was really scary it's It's like that's a movie that's so scary to me. I almost couldn't revisit it as I got older. um it was just it like did some damage to me at a young age right <laughs> so um I'm saying. as I got older, yeah, as I got older, I was more of a horror comedy guy, So. Hmm. Well, I don't know that those are the Mount Rushmore. Like, if you told me to make the Mount Rushmore, I'd put, like, Halloween, The Exorcist, The Thing, um, things like that. But my favorites tend to be um, Evil Dead 2. Um, yeah. I'm a big Peter Jackson guy. Uh, so early Peter Jackson stuff I loved. Um, Bad Taste, um, uh, Dead Alive, uh, were, you know, they were some of my favorites. Um and uh, Reanimator is another movie I loved uh, for for a long time. So I, I, I'm a big horror comedy. Uh, recently, of course, Shaun of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Is a, I'm a huge fan of Shaun of the Dead. And then I'd say Dawn of the Dead is probably up there. The original Dawn of the Dead,
0: the Romero version, right.
1: the Romero version was a movie I saw you know hundreds of times as a young impression impressionable horror wannabe filmmaker. So And all of these, even Dawn of the Dead, it's very dark and very gross and ultra-violent. Probably the goriest movie at that time that ever came out, you know, with special effects and stuff. Right. Um, But it has a weird sense of humor to it too. You know, it has that dark sense of humor and satire to it. Um, And then I was a big Nightmare on Elm Street guy as well.
2: Oh, I see. Yeah.
1: They're probably they're probably all my all my favorites as as far as you know. So most of them come were from my childhood. Right. Um, and then as I got older, I more appreciated movies for their craft. Uh, I'm a, you know, i I do like the Evil Dead remake. I think it's sort of underrated. Um, I'm a Sam Raimi fan, so mm-hmm. I, another movie I, I really like is Drag Me to Hell. Uh, <laughs> recent times,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, Scream. Well, is a big movie for me. The, the first Scream. Um, those, those are kind of all my all my favorites. Like the ones I had posters of on my wall. They're the ones
0: you'd find. Right. And like with the sports movies, I will I throw in a few and get your take on it. Okay. Uh, yeah, some yeah. of my favorite, and I'd love to get your take on it, is like uh, for me, I was never as much of a slasher guy because I was mm-hmm. always of, in my mindset if, if I could punch it in the face for whatever yeah. reason, you know, it, it didn't scare me as much uh, for yeah. whatever reason. But things like The Shining, where, oh, yeah,
1: that's another one of mine, uh, Yeah, the
0: shining or things that were sort of hidden and unexplained, like Rosemary's Baby, yeah,
1: Something
0: oh, like yeah, that. oh, yeah, um, yeah, for sure, and uh, or, or, and granted, this is one of the ones where you could, I guess, punch someone in the face, but for whatever reason, I found it pretty frightening. The original, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre,
1: oh, for sure, yeah, yeah, the, now, that one just felt so real, and uh, the thing I love about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I think the best horror movies, they they put you in a situation where you feel like you're in the hands of a madman, Mm -hmm. right. And you're trapped. So if you're in the theater, you're like trapped and there's this crazy person that's willing to do any crazy thing. And I think that's what Texas chainsaw massacre does so well.
2: Right. You you, you lose
1: control much like the characters in those movies. They have no control. They're trapped. (laughs) They're trapped in this situation. Right. Um, all, All the ones you just said would easily fit on my list. I think i saw Rosemary's baby a little later in my life you know mm-hmm. probably more my college days or something um the shining is one that ages great with me like maybe the first time i saw it um i was just kind of scared by it but as i get i it's a movie i return to so often i love dr sleep actually i thought it was great mm. um i wish i wish it had made a lot more money right. actually but uh the th- uh, yeah, The Shining is one of my favorites. Uh, it's just, it's terrific. I, I I return to it probably at least once every other year. I'll, I'll rewatch The Shining.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, Stephen King stuff in in general. It's like I remember watching Cujo, which
1: Cujo yeah, frightened yeah. me as a kid. Yeah, sure. uh, couldn't
0: couldn't yeah. go near Saint Bernards for a long, long time. <laughs>
1: it, it's great. I mean, that whole. I, I'm actually surprised they haven't remade that in some ways because that whole section with them trapped in the car. Oh yeah. I think that could almost be a movie unto itself, you yeah. know, just, just do the car, you know, cause that, that's such a great, and it's cheap. And, you know,
2: yeah.
1: um, yeah, no Cujo, uh, all those Stephen King movies I saw, then he even had things like, you know, children of the corn, oh, <laughs> stuff yeah. like that when I was growing up and, um, they're, they're just misery was one of my favorite, um, Stephen King books. Uh, and the movie was great um yeah i I like i like them all Uh, ironically my favorite stephen king book is pet cemetery but i never loved the movie i I thought the movie was okay um but the book the read was just really terrified me when when i was like 12 years old
2: yeah, yeah
1: uh
0: and now switching gears um because of the coronavirus, I hear and I've seen on news reports that people are starting to put up their Christmas lights again to sort of brighten the mood, and like Hallmark Channel is bringing back Christmas movies. Apparently, so let's touch. You've written a few. Uh, what are your mm-hmm. what, what's your Mount Rushmore of of
1: Christmas movies? Uh that's that's an interesting question. I the first one that comes to mind is Home Alone
2: right uh, i love
1: home alone and home alone's the type of movie i i aspire to write you know it's kind of that it's a comedy it has some action the kids love it everybody loves it it's that four quad it's a perfect four quad movie uh so home alone and conceptually home alone is such a great movie it's just a great concept uh the kid fighting off the two the two villains yeah. so home alone pops in i'm a huge die hard fan i mean Die Hard was when I saw Die Hard. It almost—I always tell people—it ended action movies for me. I, I like—I was like, it's never going to be this good. It's like I, I'll never have another action, and it really hasn't been for me. <laughs> like Die Hard was the was the peak action because the villain is the greatest villain to me of all time. Like he's my favorite villain, right. um, and uh, you know, it has that comedy. It has the heart. You know, with the. The cop talking to him on the phone. Um, Die Hard is just—it is the—it's my favorite action movie. You know, the pure action. Um, I'm trying to think of what else would be there. Uh, Christmas Story, I guess, would be the other one that you know. I, I kind of grew up with that, with that—all those jokes and how repeatable it is to watch. Um, that would probably be my other one. How about you? Well, for Christmas.
0: Let's see. Uh I I love Elf, but it's it's definitely a Christmas movie, but it's so comedy heavy that uh sure, you know. Sure. Uh Scrooged probably would go on my list. Scrooge, that's a yeah, that's a good one. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's probably I know a lot of people love Miracle on thirty fourth street.
2: Uh yeah, I'm not I'm not as into it. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think it's it's a little it's a generation past, but um Yeah.
1: I- I I haven't even really, I'm not much of a, it's a wonderful life guy either. I've never right. really been into that either. So, you know, some of those, I I guess I watched them. Christmas Vacation, I guess, is another popular one people talk about. Right. Um, and all, all these are such great four quad movies, too. Uh, that's the interesting thing about Christmas Vacation. I don't I can't remember if that one was, because I know the early ones was R, but I think that one scaled back and, and was more uh, for the family. Um, so I don't, I don't want to go on record on that until I Google it or IMDb (laughs) it.
0: Uh, Have you seen, it's on Netflix. I think it's called The Movies That Made Us.
1: I love that show. Yeah, there there
0: was the Home Alone one with, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. where they talked to Chris Columbus and John Hughes and, you know, it was pretty amazing to, to learn, uh, you know, how they made Home Alone, which was, you know, I think. Yeah, how they,
1: how they shot the whole thing in a school, I remember. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the whole production office, the studio, the set, it was all in a school. In and in a, I, I remember because they did the flooding scene and they put it in the school's pool. That was the the coolest thing. I never knew any of those facts. So Great show.
0: Yeah. And how it was, I think it was originally a Warner Brothers film, but then something happened. And then, you know, John Hughes right. took it to Fox and Fox, you know, ran with it after mm-hmm. Warner Brothers let it go for some reason. I can't remember exactly what happened, but. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic. Yeah, yeah, pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, no, that that sh- that show is great. Cause they also have a Die Hard episode. I think there's a Ghostbusters episode. Yeah, and they're all great. Um, yeah, and my favorite was, for, surprisingly enough, my favorite episode. Like those are three of my favorite movies right there. Sure. But my favorite episode was the Dirty Dancing one because I knew nothing about right. it, it which is kind of fascinating. Yeah, you know, no, I, I agree. Like, I was like, Billy Zane was in Dirty Dancing, (laughs) or auditioned for Dirty Dancing. It was just, like, shocking. Right.
0: Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, I learned a lot, too, and it was pretty amazing.
1: So, if you haven't seen it. Yeah, The Toys That Made Us is, is, I guess, the show it spun off from, and that's another great show.
0: Right, yeah. Well, that, in terms of that, it's, you learn a lot, but we don't work in that industry, so I didn't know most of that stuff anyway, and I don't think I would have been expected to. But with right, with right. Uh, the movies they made, you think, oh, we've been in the business. You hear, you know, the dealings behind it. But with those classic movies, yeah, I knew nothing about, you know, how they were made and things like that. You just think that, like, today, you know, someone like John Hughes takes a script to a studio. They say, okay, let's make it. They give him a budget. He hires Chris Columbus. They go make a movie. And, you know, you just don't realize all the everything that went on to actually making what is now obviously a, a classic film franchise.
1: Yeah, it's funny. You're you're hitting one of my hot buttons too, to the point where um I, I'm actually going on a podcast later this week that mm-hmm. they let you pick a movie topic. And my movie topic that I picked was uh behind the scenes books and uh documentaries. <laughs> so I love I can't get enough of behind the scenes with movies and books and documentaries. I just I I have a library full of books and watch every documentary. So that, that show hits me right where I am. So
0: that could be some great, because that would be one of my next questions is things that you're binging uh, in terms of film, TV books, but instead let's talk about uh, film and TV and book documentaries. Like what, what is it? What would you be your recommendation in terms of somebody interested in, you know, movies that made us, uh, what, what are some of the books and some of the things they should
1: watch? Sure. Sure. Um, just don't talk to the other documentary. Don't tell them I'm, you know, preempting them. Uh, Okay. Just, uh, the, the, um, well, this will be a preview for that podcast. That is a preview. It's a preview. So I, I'm a big fan. You know, I, I've gone through, you know, rebel without a crew is, is classic. You know, the Robert Rodriguez making of El Mariachi is a really Mm -hmm. fun book to read. Right. Um, uh, I, I'm a huge fan of the Rinsler Star Wars books um, I'm a big Star Wars guy uh, I grew up on Star Wars uh, this guy J.W. Rinsler wrote these big coffee table style books that have production schedules script wow. snippets, behind the scenes photographs, they're these huge everything you ever wanted to know about like the making of those movies and there's one book for each of the movies. So there's a, there's a Star Wars, there's an Empire, there's a, a Return of the Jedi. Um, he never did one for the prequels, unfortunately, which I would have loved to have seen. Uh, but, uh, and then he also did one for my favorite movie. Uh, he did an Indiana Jones one, which covers all three of the, of the indie movies um, in one book. So I'm, I'm a big fan. I highly recommend those um, they're probably some of my favorites. Okay. Lots of pictures. Lots of pictures, but lots of data. Tons of data. Data about George Lucas's business dealings, his decisions to direct or not to direct, you know, the problems with the production, all that kind of stuff. Right. So but, but all with great pictures and great materials.
0: Great. What about uh, yeah. documentaries about film that you found particularly fascinating?
1: Yeah, there's so many, and I, there's so many out now, because they seem to just show up and pop up on Hulu or something. Like, right. Um, one or two that you've uh, seen recently? Yeah. Uh, well, this one's kind of old, like Lost okay. in La Mancha uh, was, was the one that I really enjoyed, the Terry Gilliam uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, film. And I don't even know where that is. Like, I haven't seen that one in a while. Um, Hearts of Darkness, the Apocalypse Now documentary oh, yeah, that was probably great. the best. You know, that's probably the gold standard. Um, And then recently, I'm trying to think of the ones, because I watched so many of them, uh, I'm probably just blanking them. You know, the ones that are coming to mind are like the, there was the one that was about the making of The Island of Dr. Moreau. um, And uh, then there was the other one that was the failed Tim Burton Superman movie. Um, That was a great one with Nicolas Cage. I think that one's on Hulu. Yeah, that one's on Hulu, so... There's just so many of them. I love them. I love them so. I'll I'll watch any one. Apparently, there's one about Alien. That's you know it it played the festivals. I haven't seen it yet, uh, so I'm looking forward to that one too.
2: Right. Great.
1: Alien memories. I think.
0: Yeah. Um. And I guess sort of lastly, giving your sort of advice or thoughts. To the listeners out there, or the writers out there who are going through this, uh, what sort of words do you have for them or thoughts for, for them?
1: It's so hard. Uh, I can only imagine. I know how much anxiety you know, we have here, so I, I know people are, are having a rough time all over. Um, I, would, I, I can tell them almost what I, kind of what I tell myself. Um, I, I think in these times controlling what you can control is like the only thing that really helps the the anxiety. You know, for me, I can sit down at my computer and work in a story or write an outline or, or just the process of that. The fact that I control that, that that's what I know and that's what I do. And that's what I love. I, to me, that's, that's the thing that helps me in these times because otherwise I just, you know, be checking every news story out or, you know, watching every horrible thing go down. But at least at some point in the day, I can retreat into that world that I know, that I love, that I'm passionate about. And uh, I think if you, if you have that, you're in, you know, you do have something at least that you can escape for a little bit of time and, and be productive. Um, those things are making you a better person. That process is going to make you a better writer it's going to help your craft and who knows, it may even help your career at some point. So I, you know, keep your nose down, keep writing um, if you can. And uh, I hope we all come out the other side, better people for it. Um, and I hope it's, you know, I hope for the best. Right,
0: Great. Thank you so much for coming on today, Jamie, and, and sharing your, your knowledge and, and experience with us.
1: Yeah, thanks thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun.
0: Uh, Be sure to follow Jamie on Twitter. It's at Jamie underscore Nash. Uh, That's right. Yeah, be sure to follow him on Twitter. And to all you listeners, remember, we're all in this together. So stay safe, be well, and we will see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.